What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, to celebrate the 100th episode of the Rewatchables podcast, Quentin Tarantino returns for the third and final movie in his three-part series with us. In the final episode, Bill Simmons and Sean Fennessy discuss with Quentin one of his favorite movies, the 1990 crime thriller King of New York. Make sure to check out this special episode and follow at The Rewatchables on Twitter for highlights of all 100 episodes. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Warner's War and the great Roger Deakins. We're joined by our Warner, Chris Ryan. What's up, buddy? That's right. One take, Chris. Uh, on this show, we're going to be alert, spoiling a movie. That movie is called 1917. So if you do not want to have that movie spoiled for you, I suggest you fast forward to our long conversation about Roger Deakins later in the show. 1917, of course, is dedicated to the memory of Sam Mendes' paternal grandfather, Alfred Mendes, a veteran of the Great War. 1917 is a latecomer and a new favorite at the Oscars. It's already a huge box office success. It's got 10 Academy Award nominations, unusually strong word of mouth among human beings that I've encountered, if not universal critical acclaim, something we'll talk about on this show. We're also going to talk about what makes this movie unique and about the work of Deakins, Mm -hmm. who is the cinematographer on this movie and really one of the great living film artists. Let's start with the movie. This movie is well known now as the sort of one take movie, the the no-cutting incredibly stylized and choreographed film. Chris, I'm going to start with you. Okay. What did you make of 1917? Uh, you know, I, I really respected it, if, if not entirely moved by it. So I, I really, I thought it was just like a wonderful film to spend time with and go on this adventure with these guys and go through this journey and, and this trip through hell with them. But I wasn't particularly like deeply moved by the movie. I think it really kind of repeats a lot of war movie tropes that are pretty well-worn at this part. And a lot of the like kind of emotional moments of the film are, are, are ones that I've, I feel like I've, are pretty well-worn. Amanda, what about you? I just want to say that I really respect it is how you start like a breakup. Just so you know. <laughs> I, just, I want you to know. I really, I really yeah. respect you. It's not you. It's World yeah. War I. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I agree with Chris though. Like I'm maybe surprisingly a bit warmer towards it. I think that this is like a truly... Truly, like, remarkable uh, piece of filmmaking, which is not something you hear me say very often, and, like, a a good movie. And I think that there is a real distinction between the two. I actually would agree 100%. She said it better than I did. Yes. It did it. Incredible filmmaking. Pretty good movie. This is an unusual way to talk about a movie. Because a lot of time, I think, mostly what... We respond to films differently. Usually we're looking for the emotional hook and we're not thinking about the way that a movie is made. 1917 really foregrounded its its presentation. In fact, a featurette about how they made this movie was released before the movie was released wide. And so there was a lot of awareness about how they captured, for example, that Roger famous running. climactic running sequence. <laughs> and th- there is like a kind of effortfulness in the filmmaking that makes this movie seem like an important kind of film. Yeah, sure. Chris, I feel like you don't like to know too much about what's going on behind the curtain before you see something. Was Did that affect your viewing of the movie? Because Amanda and I saw this, I think, back in November. And it was a little bit more of a shock to you We guys. didn't really know very much about it. I certainly didn't watch the featurette. I, I watched the trailer once and was like, I don't want to think about this anymore until I see it. I think I'd seen the gif of Deacons running. And I knew that it was a, a one-take adventure. But that was about it. It did really bother me. I, 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 I like to go into movies with knowing as 
as little as possible, which is obviously ironic considering the job that we do here. But if I have the chance, I'll go into a film just tr- as cold as possible. Uh, I usually watch like one trailer and I try to, to do a lot of behind the scenes featurettes before I see movies. Um, with this one, I felt like, uh, you know, you, there's nothing you can there's nothing you can criticize about the way the film was made. I mean, I think you could make an argument about... Well, I wanted to know from you guys, what, why, why do it as a oneer? What, what made this movie special? Aside from the physical, technical achievement, did it somehow explain to you... Did it, did it improve the story? I don't have an answer to this. This is also my number one question about it. So I have an answer. I don't know if it's going to be an adequate answer for what you guys want out of a movie. I think the reason is because it's a movie of forward progress. Every man, step counts. It's a man on a mission movie, and it it happens in a contained period of time. In the film, we're told it should take eight hours. Ultimately, we don't know how long it takes. Because he blacks out, right? Yeah. Exactly. But because of that forward progress, every step forward is something that can be captured. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, there is a logistical storytelling reason to do it in this way. Now, obviously, the real reason to do it this way is because it's a great gimmick. It's yeah. something easy to sell. It's very exciting. It's it's a challenge, I think, probably creatively for the people who worked on the movie. I mean, this is a $100 million movie with thousands of artisans working on it. Sure. If you look at the credits, yeah. it's crazy. For somebody like, obviously, Mendes is best known for his work in character drama and for his work on the stage. Deegan's is known as a capturer of, of great images, mm-hmm. of, of kind of like daring, beautiful vistas. And I could see it as just a kind of Kind of a flex. You know, Chris, when you've had a day when you make four podcasts uh-huh. and it's like, Chris, we need you in the studio for the fifth, you get in there and you say, I want to do a one-take cut. You know, sure. I don't I don't want to be interrupted. I want to show you the mastery of my craft. And I actually thought that the first half of the movie till about when, after he gets off the truck with Mark Strong, I, I thought that that made a lot of sense. I felt like I was going along every single step. The idea that one trench would be an up up trench and they're going down it and everything about the tunnels and the rat in the bag and every, you know, I I felt like all those steps were incredibly well accounted for. And then it just starts to get a little fast and loose when it's jumping into waterfalls and, you know, how long have I been asleep for and stuff like that. How conscious of it did you feel, Amanda, while you were watching the movie? Were you, were you eyeballing every shot to see where the camera was moving? No, because I don't normally watch films that way. And, you know, I was, I hadn't lived in it for two months, as I think a lot of people who have been like following the Oscars but hadn't been able to see the movie have. But I-, I was a little bit aware of it. And I was somewhat skeptical going into this because, as you guys know, I get a little impatient with like the fussy athletic aspects of, wow, what a, what a feat of filmmaking. Just, yeah. you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, the way that people talk about filmmaking can sometimes be like going to war. And so I, this, I was just kind of like, I don't really. Support the troops, support the cinematographers. Yeah. 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 And, you know, one of the, one of the many things I like about Deacons is that he doesn't usually uh, participate in that. Uh-huh. He's just kind of like, I, I'm just trying to, trying to get the shot, trying to, trying to make a, a good story. But so I was not watching the shots in part because I was like, I don't, I'm not really interested in, in how they did this. I'd like to have the experience. And to that end, especially, as Chris said, the first 45 minutes, really until the blackout, it it was working for me. I did find myself paying attention to the story decisions that have to be made to mm-hmm. support this type of filmmaking. And I would like to talk a little bit more about that at some point because I do think that the, it gets in the way. but Not gets in the way, but you become aware of what they're doing. There are a lot of coincidences. How about I, that? I completely agree with you. Um, you yeah, know, are you like more 
100% approval rating on this? Where are you? Uh, I think I'm more easily enchanted by some of the technical feats of Uh the movie while acknowledging that it's not that hard to do something if you have enough money and enough people Mm -hmm. and enough time. You know, most films just don't have... This is a big-budget studio war movie. It is the most, like, classical Hollywood thing that can be made. And so it's not that it's so difficult you know, financially or even creatively per se, but just just the doing of it is difficult. And if you watch some of that behind the scenes work, you can see that not just these incredible shots of George McKay's character racing across a, the you know across the trench mid battle, but all of all of the trench work, all of the choreography, yeah. all of the thing, everything that apes Paths of Glory and everything that apes All Quiet on the Western Front and the way that they're pulling from all this history of war movies, I think is impressive. I watched the movie for a second time over the weekend to prepare for this, and it really just does not work on a rewatch. Like, Mm -hmm. it's actually not fun to watch because all the tricks are evident. You're looking for every cut. The story is very thin, and once you know exactly where it's going, it doesn't really hold up very well. That doesn't necessarily take away from the feeling I had the first time I watched it, yeah. which was a real wow. I so I I, I watched it. Th- I saw it this weekend in the theater, and then I went back and rewatched it a little bit uh, on a screener, and I was like, oh god! Like the first time you see the tripwire scene in the tunnel, you're like, you, you jump out of your seat, and mm-hmm. the first time the plane is coming towards the barn, you're just like, that's that's not happening, is it? Oh my god! It's Those were the two scenes yeah. in particular that played way less effectively for me the yeah. second time. And I think that knowing where the story is going and knowing the kind of boss levels of British character actors that he meets <laughs> along the way, and you know, I, I gotta say, we could get into this, but the the presence of people like Andrew Scott don't do the two guys, the two main characters, any favors because you basically are like, stop the camera, like I want to hang out with these guys in in this dugout and find out why he's throwing holy water at their backpacks. Really? I uh, Can we talk about George McKay? Sure. I, I don't want to jump ahead, but I was like blown away by him. And I and I have not revisited the movie, so I, which I don't know that I will. Yeah. And I think I had an ideal experience where I went to see it. I was affected by it. I thought he was astounding. I was like, I don't know who that is. I need to Google that person. I need to find out everything that he's doing. And I just kind of enjoyed the dollops of the other guys. Sure. But maybe I'm maybe I'm alone in that. Well, I, I think he's very good. There, I don't think there's any question about him being a good actor or not. I think he is not given much to do that charms you. And I think like when you do see Andrew Scott on screen, he's like he's a charm machine. Obviously coming off of Fleabag, we mm-hmm. now have a relationship with him and as the hot priest. I'm I'm personally less um, emotionally invested in Colin Firth or Benedict Cumberbatch. Those are not my favorite actors in the world. I know you're probably a much bigger fan of both of them than I am. I'm a huge Colin Firth fan. And I was like, okay, so he's You're not just, a batch bro? I, I enjoy <laughs> I'm not a batch bro. Okay. Yeah. I, that's not how I would Did identify myself. Did it take you out myself. of the movie at all? Like when Richard Madden shows up, is it like, oh, like we've been saving this? No, I was more like, who is it going to be? Who is the brother right. going to be? And- I, I was maybe just gave in to the emotions at that point. Yeah. I was pretty affected by it. I don't know. I guess I'm kind of basic. But as soon as that, as soon as he's sprinting and that you get the full deacon, sure. the music swelling, I was kind of like, okay, wow, this is powerful. Wow, war movies. And then I thought that was nice. And then it was over. And frankly, I never really thought about the movie again. It's interesting that the last two major war movies that we that we've, especially that we've discussed around these parts, but I think in general, the last two major war films have been 1917 and Dunkirk. And both have been, in their own different ways, I think Dunkirk's a much better film than this, uh, 
largely concerned with the spectacle of war rather than the sort of inner work, inner character workings or the particular personalities of the characters involved. You're more I, of a Hacksaw Ridge guy, well, ultimately. No, but I think that that is actually the sort of, the catch-22 with making a war movie, to use a, a, another yeah. war story, is the idea that when you mount a production about a war, you're almost seduced by the spectacle of what you're going to show and the set pieces of what you're going to show rather than the people involved. Because you really are trying to make this statement with your war film. For all for all the fact that like people after, are like, oh, Saving Private Ryan sort of falls off a little bit after they get off the beach. That is where you find out about who these people are going on this journey, you know? It's very true. I mean, before we go too far into the story and, and the acting, I think it's probably important to talk just a little bit about the kind of craftsmanship of the movie. Mm-hmm. So obviously Deacons is really feels like the co-author of the movie to me in a lot of ways. Nothing against Christy Cairns Wilson, the co-writer of the screenplay, or Sam Mendes, the director, but it feels like a movie that without Deacons' is, um, classical design set against modern technology, which I think is a kind of an important thing to talk about with him. He shoots on digital, unlike some of his um, his contemporaries who do not like to shoot on digital. He's very inventive with how the camera can move. He'll like set it on a crane, then move it into a camera operator's hands, and then attach it to a truck, all in the same shot. He's very balletic in that way. Um, Chris and Amanda, when you guys think of the the shots, the fo- photography of Roger Deakins, what do you think of? Well, there's a Deakins quote that I really, really like, which is, uh, well, there's two actually that I wanted to mention in in talking about his work. One is uh, people confuse pretty with good cinematography, which is not the same thing. And I think a lot of the times, especially in the last like maybe 10 years or so as it's become more pop, like, you know, there was that explosion of like film Tumblr where people were just always doing like these screenshots or... The one perfect shotification. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That there was a kind of homogenization of how we thought about cinematography or what we thought of was good cinematography, which is like, look at this amazing shot from this Terrence Malick movie and you can see the dandelion blowing in the wind or whatever. (laughs) Um, And the other thing that Deacons has said before is that reality doesn't have to be naturalistic, which I've always really, really liked that idea that um, I think we think of realism as um, verite, handheld, showing grime, available light, like like kind of like a sort of spontaneity to it. And there's nothing spontaneous about Deacons' work. I mean, you can tell that everything is planned down to the centimeter, but it still feels realistic, even if it's not naturalistic. And so those are the two things, and I think that they're both on display in 1917, where it feels real, like a realistic war movie, even if it doesn't feel naturalistic. What about you, Amanda? Yeah, I I think I agree with Chris. I, as I said, a thing that I like. I, I don't have a lot of patience for fussiness in in any walk of life, but especially when it comes to talking about filmmaking and and when the seams are showing or when it's like, oh, look at this camera angle or look look at this this framing. And as Chris said, everything in Deacons is extremely planned and composed. And I I don't mean to take away from the work, but it is in the service of, of the story. And, and I think of the image and you're as opposed to paying attention to the camera itself. And I respond to that. I do also think there are just some aesthetic things that, you know, I do, I prefer it when people film outside or film with Mm -hmm. what looks like natural light, even if it's not. And, you know, the landscapes and the, it's, it's just kind of my taste. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has his visual signatures. He has his hallmarks. Those hallmarks are kind of up and down this film as well. This, those sort of vistas that you're talking about, Amanda. These really wide shots that are not shot on an anamorphic lens, which is unusual to use a, a spherical lens like that on those shots is very strange because 
he's fitting a lot in the frame without using the traditional technology that you would use to do that. Yeah. A lot of helicopter shots, a lot of lone, cars on lonely roads, you know, a lot of explosions uh, with close-ups in the, in the fore of the frame and like crazy activity going on in the background of the frame that's also happening in this movie. And he's the, like the master of the silhouette. He's the master of something, a shadow set against uh, a burning building or, you know, famously um, the No Country for Old Men shot of Josh Brolin's character sort of running through the darkness. Like yeah. that is, those are like the, the, the Deacon's motifs that you see over and over again. A lot of them are used here to, to good effect, I think. There's some other kind of craftsman-like aspects of this movie that are notable. The editing was not nominated at the Oscars, thank God, even though it just won Best Editing at the Critics' <laughs> Choice Awards because there's Lee Smith edited this movie. He also edited Dunkirk. Lee Smith is Christopher Nolan's editor of choice. But the editing is predetermined here. The editing is done in the camera. It's all done in the camera. There's, the camera movement determines the pace of the film. So, yeah. you know, I'm, Lee Smith is a gifted editor. If you want to learn about that, watch Dunkirk. It's not based on the work in this movie. Um, the digital photography, I think, actually just helps this for obvious reasons. You, you just wouldn't be able to make this movie if you didn't use a digital camera. If you used a giant, bulky Panavision 35-millimeter camera, you wouldn't be able to get any of these shots. You'd also have, Would you still have to stop every 10 minutes, or have they made the magazines bigger? That I don't know, but I mean, they're not reproducing new film technology sure. in this way, so it just would have been way harder to make the movie. You know, you describe Deakins as the co-author of this movie in some ways, you know, like, and and I think that that is the thing I think about whenever his name comes up is uh, his impeccable taste. I mean, pretty much since the early 90s, he had that moment where he does Air America, this very bad Robert Downey Jr. Mel Gibson movie about um, the CIA in Vietnam, that, but they play it as like a buddy comedy. Uh, and he almost quits Hollywood. And then he gets Barton Fink in the early 90s. And then since then, is batting like 980. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, like he kind of has like one or two movies where you're like, well, that's not the best movie I've ever seen. But m a lot of them are in the conversation, you know, and uh, all of his work with the Coens, with Denis Villeneuve and uh, with Sam Men Mendes. And uh, you get through it and you're just like, well, so am I really responding to Deacons' taste or am I actually responding to the fact that Deacons is making my favorite filmmakers that much better? It's an interesting question about what role a cinematographer plays in the in the execution of a movie. Every movie is different. Some people, the director composes all the shots and maybe they use someone who functions essentially as a camera operator. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a true collaboration. Sam Mendes is not as, say, technically gifted a film director as some of his contemporaries because he's a theater director. And so he depends on people like Deacons yeah. to help him make his movies. I don't think that's besmirching Sam Mendes in any way to say that. I did also, as I was going through the filmography, start wondering at what point your taste just becomes Deacons' taste. Exactly. You know, like I like I can't yeah. separate the mm. two because I know I respond to those certain signature shots and like that has become what, quote, good cinematography is to me. Sure. But he's that prolific and that that good that often. And you, it sounds you a big like a fan it, of the reader. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's also like, it sounds like in a lot of these cases, he's uh, involved in a way where it's not like, I, like you said, I'm not bringing this person on to set the lights of that day and to, uh, to choose a, a camera operating team. Like he's involved. If you read about the making of Blade Runner 2049, which obviously did, was not a perfect film by any means. It sounds like Deakins was involved from the earliest stages of pre-production and conceptualization and looking at the architecture that they were going to try and replicate in that movie. So when you see a, sh a film shot by Roger Deakins, for the m more often than not, I think you could consider him with the directors and writers like the author of the, of the film. I totally agree. Do you guys think that there's just a little bit of a 
there's a tyranny of the oneer right now that is yes dominating movies too yes. much. Yes. No, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the it's like the three pointer. It's the one thing that seems to get valued. You know, mm. it's like oh, cool. Like we've decided that this is like how we express what. Like, what are we trying to express with a oneer? You know, it's like so, and more often than not, it's a dick measuring contest. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not about Sorry, it's it not is. about it but it's not about evoking anything that's in the script or in the performances to show you something. Oh, okay, this is what it's like to go through this entire process unbroken or whatever. It's about oh, hey, I conceptualized the set so that like we could do Birdman and like go up and down these stairs and outside of the theater and back in because what? Who knows? Yeah, I think in some cases it can be used purely as a visceral explanation, right? In Children of Men, that very famous shot is just to show you how harrowing the scene is in mm-hmm. many ways. In The Irishman this year, it's a it's a it's a self note, you know, it's a it's a an aspect of Scorsese's own career that he's commenting on and playing with, and it's not it's not this virtuosic move inside the film. It's it's a note that these things are all sort of interconnected, and that life is long and painful, etc. This one is like definitional. It's like the, there is no movie without sure. this aspect. I I don't think it's going to age well, I, but I don't think oneers are going anywhere anytime soon. Maybe much to your chagrin. I actually don't mind the actual oneer itself. It is it is the conversation around it and the fact that it just assigns importance automatically to to things that perhaps haven't earned it. I wouldn't underestimate a generation of people raised on first-person shooters, too, yeah. making mm-hmm. movies now. I think there is, like, inherently a video game quality to this movie. And I think if you look at the fan reaction to the movie very early on, it's very male. It's very aggressive. It's very clearly, like, this is my kind of movie. It's, you know, the, like, the 1917 Reply Guys are a real thing. It's a big really? thing. Yes. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It's like a whole community. It started instantly. Yeah, I watched Manola Dargis joust with them yeah. all weekend. On because, Twitter? Yeah. Yes. Because About what? About her negative review of 1917 as a, as a, an empty exercise. And what were the dudes who were like, Team 1917, Colonel Severson for life saying? <laughs> they were They're, saying, you don't know anything about movies, and I do because I played Call of Duty. Right. And also, like, you're a woman you wouldn't understand. And, oh. you know, movies about war are and and men and, and, and filmmaking are important. It, it was like conflating all of the things. Okay. Under the wrong circumstances, and I don't think that this is actually fair for 1917 to be cast in this light, but there is a, a slightly Gamergate quality to some of the potential discourse of this movie. Now, I hope it does not get there because it's a good movie. <laughs> like, I think all three of us actually quite like it. But I think I liked it the most of anybody. You, you, I yeah. think you did. That's so weird. <laughs> I, I think, what? Well, you've only watched it once. <laughs> That's true. Um, That's the secret, guys. All your burners went to work this weekend. Uh, Amanda's just like, I hate 1917 Twitter. It's like, meanwhile, it's like, I do worry. I do worry. Zone, yeah. I do worry a little bit, though, if it wins Best Picture, how it will be ripped from the hands of its creators and to become this sort of cause celeb for something different and slightly more toxic. We'll see. Maybe I'm just being a little bit. No, I think that's true. And even if we, we don't need to talk about the, the, you know, the online little mob even any more than we already have. But I do think if it wins, then it becomes just a different, a referendum on the type of movies that we value and the type of filmmaking that we value, especially in this year, um, that it is maybe not built to, to live up to. Before we we should probably say what doesn't work about the movie. There are some things that don't that do not work about the movie. Robust list here. There's a, there's a robust list of things um, that seem much more evident to me the second time watching it, as I mentioned. So the story is very simple. Uh, Blake and Schofield are going from point A to pay, point B. That's it. They're just meant to inform the Devons 
that the Germans have set them up and their oncoming attack is 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 I don't know, anticipated. Because they cut the, the the wires so they can't just be like, yo, Benedict, don't do that. Exactly. Right. So one thing you really learn here is that the character development is not very strong in the film. We don't know very much about these men. We don't know very much about what drives them. Um, every time they do speak, it seems to be highly metaphorical. Um, I, I want to cite, for example, the sequence in which they encounter some felled cherry blossoms, mm-hmm. which is, um, upon second viewing, one of the worst scenes yeah. in this movie. Can I can I tell you in the first watch, it wasn't. Is like, that the one where the guys like strong? The, the, they emotional. will grow out of the stones even stronger. Yes, yeah. Tom and Baratheon is uh, explaining the history of cherries, and it's just it's not it's not what you want in your movie. Um, you know, the passage of time is a tricky thing. We mentioned earlier that it seems like it's supposed to take eight hours. Maybe with his waterfall shortcut, he and chopped a couple hours. If he gets the truck and the, the, truck. The, the waterfall. That's a nice little like, whoop. How do you do like as an endurance runner? Like, can you run for four hours? Oh, you're asking me that. I'm asking you, Amanda. Um, if I had to, probably. Okay. I mean, I would like have to walk and then run. I'm, so no, the answer is no. Also, it's just the footwear in this. There, It's like wet boots. Imagine the blisters. There is a great shot that zooms in on their feet, walking yeah. through the mud just yeah. as they arrive you at the German camp. You know when you get camp. X'd out? When? When they hit the milk. That's right. Can't do milk. <laughs> no milk for me. Yeah. That's, that's they will grow old. My warmest milk. milk take. That's you. Um, <laughs> nice. Well done. Uh, what are some of the Deus Ex Machina moments that that you wanted to cite? I mean, the truck that shows up right after the whole the plane. Which also, by the way, like you were surprised by the plane, I guess. But as soon as the plane was in the air, I was like, "That plane is coming to you guys!" Run! Oh, I know. I just didn't expect yeah. like the German guy to jump out and and continue oh, yeah. his. Being yeah, super yeah, German yeah, once enough. he got out of the plane. But then, you know, I thought he was going to be like, God, thank God I got out of it. <laughs> Man. And he turned out to be the Red Baron. I had a Wednesday. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> okay, but so that happens. And then the, and Tom and we're spoiling. Okay. Tom and dies. And, and I think that that's sort of, that's a sad scene. And again, I really connected to George McKay. So I was very moved by that. And then the camera just like pans right. 30 seconds later, there are like 800 British, British soldiers. There. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, oh, what bad timing. Yeah. They're all urinating against a wall, which yeah. is an interesting cut. Um, I was impressed by uh, Dean Charles Chapman, who plays um, Blake in the film, his ability to turn white as he died. Yeah, that was a good one. Was there some digital coloration going on there? He's his face is going milk. white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really kind of fascinating. Um, upon second viewing, I really struggled with the French woman and the baby yeah. in Acoust. That was not just yeah. completely unnecessary and feels like something we've seen in war this movies a hundred times. Bias. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, maybe it oh, is. <laughs> right? That's because right. Because they set the milk the up so you can have it to the original milk delivery person. That's right. Yeah. For anyone who's listening okay. to this podcast that has not heard the hottest take, I am not a fan of milk. Or just like lived with Sean for the past <laughs> like six months. Um, I also, the the blackout. Can we talk about the blackout? Sure. Because that's both like the passage of time and... You mean when he goes up to seek out the sniper? Yes. And the sniper shoots him or like what what actually happens there why does he black out i assumed he got nicked or maybe he fell over or hit his head i've only seen this once sheer exhaustion well he falls back yeah so i don't i don't know what actually happened to him did he just hit his head it seemed like he was fired at so it's that that has been a little unclear to me after both viewings yeah um that's and you don't want something like that to be unclear if, if he took a bullet that's notable right if he didn't i don't know yeah what else 
that just that stood out to me in terms of manipulating the machinery. And then, you know, the whole thing with the nighttime after, I guess, he deals with the baby. I haven't seen this twice, so you can connect me. You can correct me. But the nighttime duel with the other soldier Mm -hmm. and then he's in the room with the one guy who's really drunk and tells the other guy not to shoot i don't know i just he would be dead he would be dead so i just (laughs) want to underline that 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 was kind of uh that was in the service of storytelling and there were a few moments like that more moments like that i know that there there is also yeah i I don't want to like like unwind the actual premise of the movie especially if it has like you know strong personal resonance for sam mendes i'm not trying to be like this was a bad idea in the first place, but just being like, if you only send two guys and you're like, the chances of them even making it out of your area are pretty slim, maybe have a plan B. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another one is when they find the people in the woods and there's like a song and then he's like, I'm looking for this division and they're like, we are that division. And and the song thing, I guess that was moving. I don't like it when people sing in movies and that, this was also when I was like, oh, you're a theater director. Like, this is a real theater moment. Like, we're just, like, pausing for some, you know, beautiful Shakespearean loot, whatever. Yeah, it's very, it was very, like, Lord of the Rings, like, when the, when, when the hobbits sing, like, right before. Honestly, the whole movie is very Lord of the Rings. I've seen it compared many times now to the Sam and Frodo aspect of the Lord of the Rings story. It's two guys, one tall, one short, on a quest <laughs> to deliver a message. Is there a tall hobbit? Uh, I think Frodo is a little bit taller than Sam. Four, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's more the Jeff Green of the of the Hobbit world, That's right? Um, Are you googling Jeff Green? I'm, no, I'm googling who's the <laughs> Sam in the Lord of the Rings. Who is Sam? Um, he's Sean Astin. He's yeah. Rudy. I, you just ask I, us. I have to be honest. Let me tell you something. As time goes by, and this is a major digression. I apologize. Are you going to say Lord of the Rings is good? It's fucking good. No Especially shit. Especially yeah, compared yeah. to like Star Wars, where that went. Game yeah, of Thrones, where that just, went. It, it invented Lord all of the Rings, it. Yes. That first trilogy is excellent. Yeah. Yes, that's... It deserves actually more respect and it won Best Picture. And I think people still love it. Like oh, if we we're did... talking about the movie and not about like Tolkien? Well, the books are good too. I <laughs> like the books. he was just like... <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> well, I thought for once we could talk about literature no. and put things in its proper Tune context. Tune into Ringer God Lit. God forbid. Tune into Ringer Lit for it's Amanda's lit. review of yeah. all the Tolkien yeah. podcasts. I actually... Never mind. I had to read The Hobbit in one day for summer reading when I was a kid. Yeah, you had to read it. Book. I know, Sean. I didn't have a good time <laughs> because my parents, I like tried to rebel and not do my homework for once, which is the theme on this podcast. And my parents were like, no, now you will read The Hobbit. And I had to read that whole thing in a day. It could have been worse. I had to read Watership Down in one day. Oh, that's tough. Because I totally forgot I was supposed that's to do really that. That's really upsetting. Yeah. Where, where do you stand on the Silmarillion? I don't know what that is. Okay. That's no. like the uh, the index, right? No, it's it's, it's like it's a sequel story. Oh, is it? Yeah. The other thing is when I I was I studied classics and so I took some Greek along with Latin and one day my Greek professor was like instead of doing Greek today we're going to learn Elvish. Yeah. Um Whoa. and just started like diagram because Tolkien borrowed from Greek in order to create that language which apparently has its own language system but I that was a tough morning. I had for a teacher me. like that who would just put Spartacus on in history class <laughs> and then go to take a nap <laughs> every time. It's funny that you mentioned that I do have the strong sensation that 1917 will be the kind of movie that they just that like, lazy yeah. seventh grade yeah. history teachers put on yeah. to teach people they about hangovers. the Great War. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Anything else to say about the weaknesses of the movie? I feel like you know you could, these are I wouldn't say they're nitpicks, but they're, they're what you said. They're Deus Ex Machina choices that make the story go forward ultimately, and that's kind of what's what's scratching at us. Yeah, and I I do think that 
you become aware of the story sacrifices that have been made in order to serve the technical uh, aspects of this movie. And that it is more, it's more of an exercise than it is a story all of the time. I do think it's still going to be a very big hit. Mm-hmm. It had a big opening weekend. It so, feels so it's like, a reason to go to the movie theater. Wait, Absolutely. Can we talk about the like the big climactic sequence though when he's running and Of course, you want to celebrate it? Yeah, I thought that was I I just was very moved by it and I don't know like a, why are you laughing because at me just I because really like I that opened my heart to moved film. you into being on 1917 <laughs> Islands. <laughs> It's like Rook takes you know pawn what? too. It's, it's life is full of surprises. But I, I did also think that if we do a rewatchables, like the poster will just be you as both kids <laughs> in nineteen seventeen, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sean and me in the plane flying. Yeah, okay, did you know that um that when George Mackay ran into the two guys and fell down as he was racing across, that that was not planned? Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But the rule was that they just have to keep going until yeah. someone says stop. So he just kept up and got going. I no, I just thought that obviously that is the climactic sequence and it's supposed to be emblematic of like what works in this movie. But, you know, the pacing and he's he's walking down and you don't know if he's going to find everybody. And then it just kind of opens up. And I did feel like my subconscious deacons like alert, alert really went mm-hmm. off. And I I was quite moved by it. I'm with you. I'm only a man made of flesh and bone. Like what that sequence is unbelievable. Yeah, to it's watch. incredible. It's so exciting. I think that there's... Uh, <sighs> You know, I was thinking about this a lot with Ford versus Ferrari, where it's just like there are so many parts of Ford versus Ferrari that even though you know what you're watching is like textbook dad movie corn dog stuff, yeah. you're just like, man, put a camera in front of a car. That looks pretty good. <laughs> you know, and and there are certain things that still trigger your sense, like your it get they get really really inside your brain when you see them. It really does. Um, so then after that sequence, you get Cumberbatch, who you love, which was a great moment for you at the end of the that movie. That was amazing for you. Last <laughs> man standing. Yeah. I don't care. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think he is, he seems good. I haven't seen his at Marvel Doctor movie. Strange 1917, yeah. Amanda's Burner. That's right. Swore, oh my God. Remember when we did the superhero draft and Micah drafted Doctor Strange first? And I was like, who is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting time for Benedict Cumberbatch. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness does not have a director, but he does have a role in potential Best Picture winner. Um, World War One movies. Mm-hmm. Where does it stack up? There's, There's been, obviously last year, They Shall Not Grow Old was actually quite a fascinating movie. Speaking of Peter Jackson, yeah. this all ties together. Wow. Paths of Glory, Kubrick's movie, one of my favorite movies ever. All Quiet on the Western Front, Lawrence of Arabia, Grand Illusion, Wings, Gallipoli. Uh, you've got Wonder Woman down here, Amanda. <laughs> you made a whole list, and I added one. Um, Can I put a, a special shout out to Regeneration, which is a I haven't seen that British film from 1997 based on the the Pat Barker novels, which were about um, Siegfried Sassoon, the the poet who went and fought in World War One, um, and, and wrote a, quite a bit of poetry about it. And it was just about these three three friends who went to go fight in World War One. It's really lovely movie. Is it better than 1917, Chris? Rank it, please, for um, Christ's sake. I think it's an ex- interesting example of like what 1917 doesn't do, which is like these character studies of these people and how they were changed by what went through the, what 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 they went through. That is the. But you know, not every movie has to be the same. It's true. That is, I would argue, the significant flaw of the movie is you ultimately are not emotionally connected to Schofield. Um, you disagree. You guys are monsters. Okay. I mean, I don't think it develops the characters at all. And like I said, I think this is ultimately... I don't want him to die. <laughs> I Yeah, I I connected to him. I thought he was great. 
Though I do think that ultimately this movie is just more about the technical achievements. I agree. So quickly, the Oscar implications of this movie before we go deep into Deakins' career. 16 war movies have won Best Picture. That honestly seems low to me. It's been a long time. It's been 10 years since a war movie won Best Picture. Do you know what that is? One of your favorites. Not Saving Private Ryan. Nope. 10 years. Oh, last 10 years? No, I I can't remember. The Hurt Locker. Oh, how about that? So recent winners include The English Patient, Braveheart, Schindler's List, Platoon, The Deer Hunter, Saving Private Ryan. Famously did not win. It Mm -hmm. lost to Shakespeare in Love. Forgot about that. This is interesting because we are not really as much of a warlike people as we were 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. I'm I'm not going to politicize this conversation, but I do think that everything that happened in Iran in the last 10 days and the public response to that incident indicates that there is less emotional commitment to the idea of sacrifice in a war than there was in Hollywood, at least. 50 years ago, mm-hmm. when it felt like when commemorating World War II, when there were still a significant amount of survivors in a war like that, I do feel like things culturally in this country, and that is not to denigrate anybody who serves or any anybody, anything like that. That's not really what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say our interest in this sort of story, I feel like has been somewhat diminished. That's culturally. a really interesting point. So I would I would argue that the films about Vietnam tended to articulate uh, a pretty anti-war message. Yes, that's actually not what I'm saying. And for, okay, I'm, I'm not saying that they're. No, I'm not saying that you think that these are pro-war, but they sort of memorialize the experience of going to war in a way that kind of. I think man, the I think the abstract nature of war in America for the last ten years has changed the country's relationship to war, and particularly the way that pop culture kind of cycles it. So the conflict in Afghanistan is horrible and has been ongoing for over ten years and seems inescapable in many ways. But it's very much more difficult to wrap our minds around than the the bayonet riddled yes. 1917. It's right. just a different sort of fighting. And whereas in 1998, when Saving Private Ryan came out, the reference was still World War II and Greatest Generation, and and to Chris's point, Vietnam. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not even really making a sweeping statement here. I just think it's interesting because I feel like there are fewer war movies than ever, and there are not as many of those sort of fusty miniseries on TV about this sort of thing. This movie is is weirdly a rarity. It's partially because studios don't want to make them. But I do think it's partially because our relationship to war has changed a lot. Sure. So it'll be interesting interesting to see where, as you know, in the in the 90s and the 80s, these movies were hailed routinely, if this thing will go all the way. You guys got up with the sunrise to start talking about the Oscars this morning. Is this the is this the third way candidate? Is this the, is this the like, you know what? Nobody's gonna be mad if 1917 wins. It's interesting. I don't know whether this is the third way candidate or whether Once Upon a Time is the third way. And I also don't know whether the third way is the one that will win. Like if Joker year. is one side yeah. and say Parasite is the other. Yeah. But could, I, I do honestly occupy, like I do honestly think there's a real nineteen seventeen contingent on its own, independent of of Joker and it's not like, Parasite. oh, it's my favorite second second favorite movie. Of a lot of people. It's, yeah, it's I th- actually I, people who I are do like, think there's, I mean, there's obviously just a huge amount of craft support with with good reason because a lot of people worked very hard on this sure. and and they pulled it off. And then I do I do think there's an, an older part of the Academy that still responds to serious war movie as like what the Oscars are about. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with Amanda. I think that there's, the Academy is still very old. That despite everything I just said about our relationship to movies like this right now, 
there's still a significant amount of people who are connected to this kind of storytelling. I think there's huge, huge support for Deacons. Huge. At the screening that I went to in November, it was a it was like a gut, like a shotgun blast standing ovation for him. Really? People rose to their feet immediately when he walked out for the QA and were roaring for him. Um, and we'll explain why when we get to doing his Hall of Fame shortly. You know, I, this is really the most wide open best picture I can remember. I thought that last year when Green Book was seemed like it was bizarrely creeping into the lead, but I couldn't really take that seriously after the Globes when Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book won. I, I think I wrote a column that was literally like, this is the most wide open best picture race I can remember. This is actually the most wide open best picture that I can remember because I don't know if there is a single authentically prohibitive favorite in the mix. Feels like four movies that are all three to one. I agree with that, except... I- I wonder how much of that is us reading what we want into the instead race of instead like of it being Joker. like it, it's Joker or it's Joker in 1917. Could I, be. I, Could be. And, you know, and, and I can really see a world in which Joker in 1917 split best picture, best director. Do you guys ever feel like the thing that makes it wide open is the fact that you're almost emotionally like open to a number of movies winning? You know what I mean? Like yeah. some years it's a binary. It's like it can't be this. It has to be this. Yes. Then some years where it's like, well, you know. I'd be happy if Marriage Story won. I'd be happy if Irishman won. I'd be happy if Parasite won. I'd be happy if Once Upon a Time won. It's a very good question. Um, I'm I'm pretty open-minded about almost every movie winning, which is rare. Uh, the, the year was just that good. I think that there is an inherent panic related to what happens if Joker wins because of the dialogue around that movie. But, and I said it earlier this morning, like even Joker winning, Joker is like a lot better than a lot of movies that have won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. We can't overlook that this is the Oscars. You know, this is not the Pulitzer Prize. Like the the the... The grade inflation here is significant. So, yeah, that's probably a big part of it. And I, I see like six or seven possibilities on yeah. Best Picture, which is just so unusual. I'm less open-minded about Joker. <laughs> but but only, again, because there are so— it was. I thought it was such a great movie. Yeah, it's and, re- there, it's, and there are so many movies that like made it close enough that are in— that mm-hmm. got nominated for Best Picture that I'm so excited about. Especially, there is something about a, a Joker-1917 combo that— um, even though Joker is a comic book movie and and those films have not had a lot of success traditionally at the Oscars, it feels like really old school. It feels like, oh, you know, we made we made all this progress or whatever. Sure. Things have changed, except like we're still rewarding the, these same types of movies. Yeah. I think the only thing that wouldn't feel old school winning, though, well, two things. I think Little Women wouldn't feel old school and I think Parasite wouldn't feel old school. Little Women would feel slightly old school. I mean, things with hoop skirts have definitely won True. Oscars before. True. Now, like I... I would argue that Greta Gerwig like entirely renovated and you know resuscitated that genre, but it it has hallmarks, right? But it, I, it's true for so many Irishmen, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even Jojo Rabbit to some extent, given you know that being a World War II story and you know the nature of kind of colliding comedy and drama, like the way that Ernst Lubitsch would. You know, yeah. like the, there's a lot of historicity I think in the race this year. Parasite's the only movie where it's like this is a movie made, produced, funded in Asia. There's just, there is not precedent for a movie like that rising to the top of the heap. So we'll see. Shall we, shall we talk about Roger Deakins? Yeah. Chris, this is, this is your first Hall of Fame. Oh, in the fall, Amanda and I did an episode about Tom Hanks. We looked at Tom Hanks' entire filmography. Except for the 21st century because Bill's wiped that from the map. No, no. We, we talked about the 21st (laughs) century, which is important. Did we include any films from the 21st century? Captain Phillips, did that make the cut? I think maybe at the end of the day, we put a beautiful day because he 
No. Was good. I don't. Did we? I think so. Okay. Well, he's Oscar nominated for that film. So right. if we did, and then that's fine. And also, he was very good as Mr. Rogers. He's a wonderful actor, Tom Hanks. Um, so we did a Hall of Fame episode about Tom Hanks. We chose his 10 essential performances. Deacons, we're going to choose 10 movies. Now, looking at his work, I mean, he has been the director of photography on well over 40 films. Mm-hmm. close Closer to 50 films. He's got an interesting career. Now, I would assume, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, we're not going to be choosing any movies from the first phase of his career. The documentary, the documentary stuff? Documentaries and shorts made in England. Mm-hmm. So essentially the first about 10 years. Yeah. I mean, this is a collaborative effort. We're not at, at war with each other. So if you want to nominate something, Yeah, if you want to do if like... If you at least want to put it... Because we'll, we'll go through and everyone can say, I think this should be in consideration. At the end, we make cuts. Okay. I can't pretend to have seen a lot of these films. Okay. So I just don't know. Maybe his work on the Zimbabwe documentary. He spent a lot of time in Africa making documentaries in the early part of his career. Maybe it's brilliant. I don't know. I don't even know where I would find it. I, I'm not sure how I could watch it. Um, a lot of these films are smaller. He's famously said, make documentaries first, then shoot features, which is interesting for such a compositional mind. So we're going to essentially move past the first phase, the of, his first phase of his career. Okay. And, and, you know, maybe that's something that we'd all like to do. We'd all like to move past the first phase of our no, career. No, I peaked early. You did? Yeah, you got you to gotta go back to my, my early 20s to find the good stuff. You are literally the number one <laughs> case in my life for just give it some time because he will grow <laughs> into a beautiful rose. Uh, phase two, the English features. Now, this is a very important period. England at this time and the films that are made at this time are kind of fascinating. Who are like significant figures in this moment? Like Stephen Frears, people like that. Alex Cox. Alex Cox. Alex Cox works with uh, Deacons here. I would say, to me, there's only one majorly significant work in this time, and that's Sid and Nancy, the Amazing Alex Cox movie. movie. Yeah. Amazing movie. Amazing movie. Um, and goes towards uh, what we were talking about before with naturalism versus realism. There's a lot of seemingly very realistic moments in Sid and Nancy that are obviously, if you watch them painterly in their composition, you know, you think about the opening of that movie with Sid Vicious being let out of the Chelsea Hotel and it feels like, oh, it's like handheld and it feels like it's like newsreel footage, but actually like, you know, he comes back around Sid Vicious and then you can see like the light pouring in from the lobby windows. It's just gorgeous and it's as beautiful as stuff in Skyfall. It's just completely different. Yeah, and the same... You're right. That same 360 degree technique that he uses in 1917 so as not to break the shot mm-hmm. where he literally circles a character and so he can change perspectives and move in a different direction. He do, does that in Sid and Nancy 35, 36 years ago. Pretty amazing. We're slightly overlooking 1984, which is probably the bur- first big, big movie that he works on. I got to say, I'm not a big fan of the 1984 adaptation. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I, I, have, I have not. This was, this was actually shown to me in high school. Oh, it's it's quite severe and painful to watch um, and did not really capture some of the like fascinating totalitarian wonder of the novel. Anyhow, that's a that's an important movie. And I would guess it's the kind of movie that got him on an upward trajectory in Hollywood. Um, but we'll choose Sid and Nancy. Any any other bids for the English features? Stormy Monday. No, no, not. No, I'm just kidding. No. Her side. <laughs> uh, so then we'll go to phase three. Okay. Coming to America. Now, this is intense. This is a little bit like the last 10 years of LeBron. You know, it's like, show me a bad season. Show me a bad moment. There's not a lot. So famously, he comes to America on a movie called Mountains of the Moon, which was directed by Bob Rafelson, who made five easy pieces and a bunch of great movies in the 70s. It's probably best known for starring Ian Glenn, 
who is the yes. uh, number one heartthrob of Mallory Rubin's life. <laughs> I think this is the is only— Is it no, I, number one? Is it complicated? He's it's, up there. It's either Baby Yoda okay. or Ian Glenn or who else is on Mal's love Lamar list? Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. And— uh, that, That's not romantic love. Though. No. It transcends it, though. Mountains of the Moon is a—it's an okay movie. It's fine. But this, this does signal that Deacons is going to stay. Chris, you mentioned the Air America story. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of bungled— um, buddy comedy set in the world of the CIA not making my list The Long Walk Home not making my list then we get to Homicide very cool movie so I feel like this is really where his like legend starts to grow because it's this movie and the work that he does in this movie that the Coen brothers see mm-hmm. that, just, that, that John Sayles sees this is an early David Mamet movie that is essentially like a crime procedural. Is it Joe Montana? Is he the star? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically split into two halves. The first half is like a kind of a cop movie, and the second half is an exploration of like Jewish spirituality. So it spoke to you on okay. two levels. Wow. <laughs> As a cop <laughs> and a half Jew. Yeah. <laughs> I was wrapped. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not going to nominate Homicide, but I'd like to cite it okay. for the historical Why record. Why are you nominating it? We can, because we'll cut things at the end. We're going to have to cut a lot. There's like seven Coen Brothers movies yeah, on this list. This is a problem for me. Okay. All right. I'm not going to do, I'm just I, trying I, to I wasn't going to nominate shine. Homicide. But you go, you do your chronological thing. Should I like, do I jump in when I'm like, I'd like to nominate this? Well, movie? We're going to kind of go through the major highlights of his career. Okay. And then we'll debate. And so, so we'll Sid and Nancy so far. Yeah. Sid and Nancy is in. It's on the, Nine it's on, spots We're making remaining. a short list. Okay. Nine spots remaining. 1991, Barton Fink. Yeah. Yeah. In. This, in. That has to be. Indisputable. It's certainly one of our favorite movies and his work on it is amazing. I just was watching a kind of highlight reel of his work in the shot of Barton on the beach with the woman sitting in front of him on the towel and the waves come crashing in, burned into my mind. Thunderheart starring yes. Michael Abdi? Yes. 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 Okay. okay. This movie is awesome. This movie is uh, kind of Val forgotten. Kilmer. Yeah, it's Val Kilmer and it's... Um, is it Wes Studi? Is he the star? Uh, I think Graham Greene's in it. Graham Greene, excuse right. me. Right, and uh, Michael Apted, who directed the 7-Up, 14-Up, you know, the, the famous British documentary series, um, along with a number of features, but this features some incredible Badlands photography, a lot of which taking place in, like, very weird, like, magic hour, dusk or dawn light, and it, it's it's just a really good crime thriller from the early 90s, and it, excellent work by by Deakins. Okay, Thunderheart is on the long list. Passion Fish from John Sales. Not my favorite John Sales movie. It's a good John Sales movie. Chris was asking me yesterday if I've ever interviewed John Sales. Um, John Sales hasn't made a movie in seven years. Okay. So the answer to that is no. Okay. Seven years ago, I was writing about Cameron. Um, I'm not going to put it on the long list. That's fine. The Secret Garden. Did you see this? Love this movie. Yeah. I'm not going to put it on the long list, but it, it, it was important to young Amanda. Okay. Now we go on an extraordinary run. I have a question. Okay. Yeah. How do we not put every Coen Brothers movie on? Well, we're going to have to make some tough choices. Okay. It's going to be a war. But you can put them all on the long list. Okay. So 1994 brings us the Hudsucker Proxy mm-hmm. on the list. Yeah. 1994 also brings us the Shawshank Redemption. Has to be on the list. Yes. 1995, after working with Tim Robbins on the Hudsucker Proxy, Tim calls him and says, I'd like you to shoot a little movie I'm making called Dead Man Walking. I think it's got to be on the list. Have not revisited this movie in a long time. It's kind of amazing that this movie is going to be 25 years old this Dead year. Dead Man Walking? Yeah. You remember how much we talked about, not we, but you remember how much Dead yes. Man Walking The editors of Entertainment Weekly taught us to talk about this yes. movie all mm-hmm. the time. 1996 Fargo. Yes. On Deadlock. 1996 also Courage Under Fire. 
I'm going to go with a different Edward Zwick movie. Okay. okay. Do you like Courage Under Fire? I I do, but I it's more the performances. That's early. Isn't that early, Damon? Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, and Den- Denzel and Meg Ryan. Tricky one. There are a couple of combat sequences that mm-hmm. are pretty interesting. It's a helicopter fight, right? Yeah. He's done a couple of desert war movies. He has. Okay, well, we'll leave Courage Under Fire off for now. Kundun, 1997. Marty, I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the best Sopranos moment of all time. Um, I'm putting it on. Yeah. The Big Lebowski has to be on. Probably the most playful movie that that Deacon's ever worked on. Yes. Zwick's The Siege. I'm going to go Siege. This is Chris Core. Explain The Siege. Uh, The Siege is about a terrorist attack that takes place in New York City and a series of terrorist attacks that cause the government to institute martial law in New York City. And uh, Bruce Willis plays a general who takes over New York. And uh, Denzel Washington plays an FBI agent investigating the uh, the attacks. And he works with Annette Benning, who plays a CIA agent, to find the bomber. And it is incredibly problematic now. But <laughs> as a urban war movie the likes of which you can rarely mount, it is quite quite something to see. This was a, also a very difficult shoot, as I recall. Was it? Reading. Yes. Um, we'll add the siege. The Hurricane, Norman Jewison's Tale of Reuben Carter. It's fine. Okay. We can I, like, I love the Norman Jewison's Tale of Reuben Carter. I was so professionally delivered. Thank you very much. I am a professional <laughs> podcaster here on the Ringer Podcast Network. Okay. Anywhere but here. Do you remember this movie? No. This oh, Mona is, Simpson. This is a, a very interesting story. Yes, the novel by Mona Simpson. <laughs> Wayne Wang directing a movie starring... Mona's a big uh, vintage paperbacks author. You know, like, you know, there's the that publishing house, Vintage, Raymond Chandler. Uh, sorry, Raymond Carver, etc. Keep going. Uh, Jay yep. McInerney. Yeah, very distinctive yeah, graphic sure, design. Yeah. And Mona Simpson. Deborah Eisenberg, I think, was part of that crew. Who are the stars of Anywhere But Here, Chris? Uh, Natalie Portman. That's right. And... Diane Lane? Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon, yeah. I remember this movie now. An unusual turn to domestic drama for Deacons. Not mad at it. I don't think it's making the long list. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? 2000. Gotta go on. Yeah. How do we... This is gonna be tough. The Man Who Wasn't There, 2001. Probably... Dead a lock. One of the least discussed... Stone Cold Lock of the Century. One of the least discussed... (laughs) (laughs) Coen Brothers movies ever made, but also arguably the most beautifully shot. So Chris says, deadlock. Dinner with Friends. You guys remember that domestic drama? I don't. No. Okay, we'll move on. A Beautiful Mind. Pass. Now, are we judging the film? Yeah, are we judging the film? Are we judging all of the the writing on the the wall? Uh, Because every single gif of things swirling around and making sense of stuff and writing on, on, on windows. So you associate that more with Beautiful Mind than Hangover? Um, I started with a beautiful mind, and a beautiful mind invented that because it was before the Hangover. Yeah, I only recently learned that that gift was from the Hangover. Also, I think I learned that on our predictions podcast. Um, but it's you know every day we we're learning and growing. Sean, this is your, your among your favorite Ron Howard films. Um, that's not even true. That's it's not even among my. What's favorite your Ron. favorite Ron Howard movie? Splash is up there. Backdraft. We're in Apollo thirteen. Apollo thirteen. Come oh, on. Apollo thirteen is is pretty great. And Da Vinci Code. And Da Vinci Code. It's in the Louvre. Right. So Angels Chris, and Demons, number yeah, one. Of course Chris I do. The, Dan knows, Brown? Yeah. Come on, son. Yes. There's been way too much talk of books on this podcast. Dan Brown so is far. the Mona Simpson of international cryptography. <laughs> Moving He's right a along. Yeah. yeah. 
The next movie is Levity. Has anyone here seen Levity? No. No. Levity is written and directed by Ed Solomon, who is notably the writer of the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure films. There's... But he's also the, the writer of the Men in Black movies. Okay. And also, I think recently wrote Mosaic, the Steven Soderbergh HBO series. One of the most well-known script doctors in Hollywood. This movie's not good. Okay. It's, we're on 2003 right now. Are, are you going to do this for all of them? Yes. Okay. Just explain what the movie is. Yeah. yeah. It, it is I, human IMDb. Uh, <laughs> I'm just in, checking. Intolerable Cruelty, perhaps the only, well, one of two Coen Brothers movies we'll pass on, partially because of the quality. I have a soft spot for Intolerable Cruelty. I like Intolerable Cruelty more than I like the other movie you're about to mention. Okay. So The House of Sand and Fog, which I think is a pass. Once Upon a Time, also kind of an Oscar contender. Remember The House of Sand and Fog? Uh, the Lady Killers. From 2004. Pass. It's a pass for me. Not a movie I like. The Village. Yeah, buddy. Yes. M. Night. M. Night. Philadelphia's own. Speak on it. Well, I think that he has a lot to do with the success of this movie, which is incredibly stupid. But uh, like 1917, the first time through, you were like, M. Night Shyamalan, like, assassinate me and and put me in the ground (laughs) underneath the Meadowlands. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah sure I agree I, I think that the first time you watch it you're completely captivated it's mostly Boy, because of how it's designed yeah it's, exactly it and the li- use of color in this yes. movie and like yeah shooting in the dark all the shadows it's all it's all Deacon stuff it's in a goofy story but it works really well Do you, did you see The Village? I was just googling it to try to remember which M. Night Shyamalan it was what's the one with the crop circles? that's Signs okay. that's Joaquin and Mel Gibson yeah I was confusing those I think they're both good yeah that's a controversial take for me uh, his first collaboration with Sam Mendes in 2005, Jarhead. Like the trailer. <laughs> I also like Peter Sarsgaard in this movie. Very good performance by him. Uh, I think there are other films that Roger Deakins has shot that I would put ahead of it. Wow. More than 10 others. I'm putting it on my long list. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that this is a key signifier. It's a, it's a key contributor to all of his signifiers. It is like the big vista, the, the abandoned desert, the close-up with sort of noisiness happening in the background. It's a good, it's a good, it's a film that f- photographs actors very well. All those Jamie Foxx sequences where he's kind of breaking people down when they're all lined up as the drill sergeant are really effective and kind of funny, but kind of menacing at the same time. I'm kind of a fan of Jarhead. It's, I don't think that's a very popular opinion these days. Okay, Trouble Time. The assassination of Jesse James by the cow- coward Robert Ford. Complete and total has masterpiece. To has to be on this. Probably, is it the most praised Yes. Photography. Which I just said like with my eyes rolling, but I'm not rolling my eyes at Roger Deakins. I'm rolling my eyes at everything at else. Bros. Jesse I mean, James yeah. bros. Yeah, Sorry, th- bros. I mean, this is just one where it's like everyone is Roger Deakins made the movie. Is there are there uh, assassination of Jesse James reply guys? Yep. I'm sure there are. Certain certainly yeah. there are. Yeah. Uh next, No Country for Old Men. Yes. Total no brainer. In the Valley of Ella. Uh you, you guys remember this Paul Haggis gem? It was okay. Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones is in the film. Is Jason Patrick in this movie? I believe Charlize Theron is in it. Oh. Um, It's a sort of a murder mystery set inside the military. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not a great movie. Notable, though, that Roger Deakins had three films released in 2007. Part of that is because the assassination of Jesse James took about two years to complete. Yeah. But still, Jesse James, No Country, and In the Valley of Ella all in Can I just jump in real quick? A little bit of a research corner. It's, it's interesting that he works so much with the Coens and the Coens do so much storyboarding 
And he talks a lot about how when you go to a Coen Brothers set, it's pretty much like you're executing what you've already pre-planned and that there's not a lot of variance from the way that they imagine the movies to the way that they're executed. Whereas Andrew Dominic was quite the opposite and would sit around all day being like, I need the sun to move six inches to the left, you know, and I need this tree to move over here. And that all of it was improvisatory and a lot of it was how can we, you know, capture this accident or correct this mistake. So he's able to work in a lot of different ways. It's very true. And in fact, the um, the weather was a significant oh, yeah. factor in 1917. Yes. I just really enjoy, uh, Roger Deakins is the unofficial ambassador for Dark Skies, the weather app, <laughs> which I also actually do use and recommend, but both in, he talks about kind of, obviously the weather had a big role in 1917 and when they could film and waiting for clouds, but also on his own blog where he answers a lot of uh, questions yeah. to aspiring cinematographers. Uh, he's just like, really randomly and enthusiastically recommends Dark Skies as the best way to achieve natural light or filming outside, which I just find I love really it charming. when, like, relatively famous people just keep blogging. Yeah. Deacons, Nick Cave has a great blog. Just stay blogging, guys. What happened to you? Why'd you stop blogging? Because I pot all the time. I don't have any time to blog. It's probably... Roger Deacons literally made 1970. <laughs> okay? And, and like... He makes... But he doesn't have to watch the Bucks. You Look know what I mean? Like, all he does... He makes... Every damn year. You are the then, 1917 reply guy. And then he shows up. He was answering them like an hour ago. He checks every day to be like, hey guys, Did thanks Roger so much for commenting. Did watch the Bucks this weekend? That's what I want to know. Probably? I doubt it. Okay. What hasn't he watched is really the question to ask. Let's keep moving. Revolutionary Road. Another Sam Mendes movie that against my better judgment, I'm a big fan of. Got to put that out really? there. Yeah. Why would you? So did, you don't like this movie? I haven't seen it since it came out. I guess I haven't either. And I remember, I mean, it's tough. That's, it's just, and obviously the source books. material is also like really tough. Yeah. yeah. Did you think Marriage Story was tough? Watch Revolutionary yeah. Road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Marriage Story is like sleepless in Seattle compared to Revolutionary <laughs> Road. But I also like at some point I'm kind of impatient with the dourness of revolutionary what like road. I get it. It's hard. It's hard to be in the suburbs. Sure. <laughs> Is that like, really your review of revolutionary road? <laughs> I get it. It's hard to be in the suburbs. Try trench warfare. <laughs> oh, no, I have to be my dad. Try trench warfare. That's all I'm saying. I mean, honestly, though. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're not putting Revolutionary Road yeah. in there. Although famously, that thing I keep talking about with the close-ups and the madness happening in the background, one of the all-time great examples of that is Kate Winslet still in the front of the frame with Michael Shannon out of focus in the back of the frame, losing his mind. That's yeah. like such a memorable Deacons moment to me. He does that so well. The Reader. No. This movie's not good. The re I think The Reader had like nine Oscar nominations. Yes. That was tough. And, it and it Kate Winslet won for The Reader. Not Isn't ideal. Yeah. Not ideal. Okay. Doubt. Good movie. Good movie. Yeah. Not Great, sure the photography is what I think of when I think of it. No. I guess some of that, like, This is the John severe, Patrick Chandler. Yeah. 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 Yes. Some of the you're going severe, like, because... You were saying it's a good movie, and I was like, it's okay. It, it, it really is... Sometimes I just get fired up that I get to see a play that I didn't get to see. That's literally what it is. It's just yeah. people, like, really <laughs> theatrically yelling at each other yeah. in rooms. I get it. It's hard to be a priest. Try okay. trench warfare. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. <laughs> Next film. A Serious Man, yes. 2009. Obviously one of my favorite movies of all time. It's going on the list. Company Men, 2010. That's the Ben Affleck movie? It certainly is. With Kevin Tommy Costner. Lee Jones. With, yeah. uh, it's all about how it's tough, guys hard to be fired. a man. <laughs> Try pa Trans Pass Warfare. on this. Okay. True Grit. Uh, 
really a good one. It's gorgeous, yeah. but I'm gonna I'm gonna save a couple of my in my mind I'm keeping track. Why don't you put it on the long list and then you can say no? I have a troll take. Is uh, Roger Deakins a fraud and the Coens are the greatest artists of all time? But if yeah, that was no. the case, his other movies would be yeah, shit. Just keep going to yeah, continuing let, on. let's get to it. In time, 2011. Is this the Justin Timberlake it and Amanda Seyfried one yes. where they're in the uh, it was very confusing, this movie. Modern science fiction film about uh, everyone having a certain amount of time on did their Andrew wrist. Did Nichol direct this? He did direct this. That guy. This was the what same year career. as Adjustment Bureau? Sounds right. Yeah, that, well, that was a weird time for, for movies. Um, no, it's not on my list. Skyfall. Yes. I, this is what I'll walk out if it's not on it's the on final the list. list. Well, on the I'll final walk one. out and oh, do on what? The final one. I will walk out. What are you, what are you gonna do? What yeah. does that mean? We'll finish the pod. I have another partner <laughs> okay, right so here. Being like, <laughs> I'll walk out. You're gonna walk out like George Mackay walking through the trenches. Yeah. Prisoners, 2013. Gosh, Chris. this movie is definitely going on the list, dude. Prisoners <laughs> is actually low key super underrated now. And this is my, I think, okay, the my reply, favorite Deacon guy has been logged I'm on. just Paul Dano in a tra- in a <laughs> in a trailer, being like, "This movie is actually the the Villeneuve that I would advocate for being on the list over Sicario and Blade Runner." One of the most insane that's, takes that's I've for Deacon's that's, work. That's terrible for Deacon's work. This movie is depraved, yeah, and incoherent. You know that I love depraved movies. Okay, this movie um, is. Fucked yeah. up. Because of our respect for you, we we'll put it on the long list. Number one Gyllenhaal performance of all time. Detective Loki. Okay. Have, have you seen um, Spider-Man Far From Home? I Honestly, Detective why, Loki is why his you name and kids you're not clothes. doing a Marvel thing. Did you see Mr. Music in the John Mulaney special? No. That's, the, that's his greatest work of all time. I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen that to see it immediately. Unbroken 2014. Do you remember when Angelina Jolie directed an adaptation of Unbroken? I do. And um, it's Jack McC- O'Connell? Yeah. Is that written by the Coens? Or one of them? I think so, yes. Yeah. I saw this movie. It's okay. It's a bit punishing. I like yeah. when it, Roger Deakins was doing interviews about this movie and he would just be like, Angie and I were watching this. That's yeah. really cool. <laughs> Sicario 2015. Yeah. I mean, I'll put it on, but yes. let's just know that my order okay. of, of preference is Prisoners number one. I need you to know that the, Prisoners over Sicario and Blade Runner 2049 is shameful. I agree with him. Okay. I zagged. Okay. Hail Caesar 2016. I like this movie. I love this movie. People should read Naaman on this movie in, uh, I think, Reverse Shot. He wrote a really amazing, like, sort of reading of the, the symbolism in this movie. So interesting tidbit here. This movie was really, really influential on Deacons going full digital because he had such a hard time dealing with the labs on the film when they shot the movie because there's so there are so few options for film development now and for treatment of, of, of film footage. And because I think he, they really lost a lot of stuff in the shoot because of their inability to convert. And so now I think you'll only see him shoot in digital, which mm-hmm. is kind of fascinating. Blade Runner 2049. I, yes. yes. Put it on the long list. More a collection of incredible images yes. than a good movie. Mm-hmm. But the images are so incredible that I, I really would love to see this on the big screen. Again. I'd also love to know about like what happened to this movie. It was, it was interesting reading interviews with Deacons where he's like, well, we wanted to shoot it in London. And it was a lot of the architecture was supposed to be this like brutalist ar- architecture in London. And they obviously have to shoot it in Budapest, Budapest I think. Yeah. And uh, in some interviews, he's like, it's really great because Denis is going to get to like really tell his story and not have to worry too much about the first movie. And that obviously wasn't the case. So I- I'd be curious to know what what ultimately happened to this movie. 
which I, I, I still am fond of, but it's very long and very, very weird. Deacons didn't make one movie this year. He made two. That's true. And the other movie he made is called The Goldfinch. Yeah. I think, I think I might have said it when you and I podcasted about this movie earlier this year, but I did think it was beautifully shot. It now, was. I think it looks great. And unfortunately, the adaptation doesn't really hold up to what's on the screen. Yeah, the the Vegas scenes were very beautiful. And Same even, thing, Desert and Vistas. Even, totally. And even I thought the New York, the the kind of on the, they weren't on the New York Street all the time, I would imagine. But kind of setting it in the city of New York was you wanted to be a part of that world. Absolutely. I wouldn't put it on my long list, but yeah, his work in that film was good. And then, of course, 1917, which, you know, is almost certainly going to be his second Academy Award win after his win for Blade Runner 2049. We didn't even really talk about how Deacons for years had been the Susan Lucci of the Oscars. Yeah. You know, he really was the most nominated person who hadn't won in his field forever. Um, be interesting to see him win two in three years. Would you put 1917 on the long list? Sure. Okay. I do want to cite one more thing for you two who do not like animated films. Rango! This is very important to me. And it's important to explaining the artistry in animated movies. Roger Deakins is the leading consultant amongst digital animators in the world. You know what this means, right? What does it mean? He gets a free lunch and he's like, great drawing. <laughs> if, he were, if, if that's all he was going to do, they would just hit him up on his blog. But he comes to Pixar. Got to get that free. That or he Pixar comes to Universal. Commissary. He's worked on Wally, How to Train Your Dragon, Rango, The Guardians, and The Croods, and the How to Train Your Dragon sequels, and including this year's sequel. You guys the are going to. You guys are going to give me a wedgie about the prisoners. Prisoners. I I am not a part of this. But How to Train Your do Dragon not, Two is canon. Do not group me with Sean on this. Okay. I I'm not going to be shouted down on my own podcast about animated okay. films. All Roger right. Deakins agrees with me. That how to train your dragon is important. Yeah, he agrees with the the, the zeros in his bank account. Dragon? You'll have to watch the films to find out. I'll never know. Um, the, the, that Lassiter money. He's just like drop the bag. Let's go. Before we cut our list down, I'm gonna just cite a couple of Deacon's facts. So we mentioned a bunch of his collaborators. The the most uh, is the Coen Brothers with 12 movies they've made together. Sam Mendes. They've now made four. Denis Villeneuve. They've made three. Are the Coens making a movie right now? I know Joel has Macbeth. I don't know if something has started after Macbeth. The standalone single Cohen Macbeth with Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington comes out later this year. Um, Deacon's big influences. It won't surprise you to hear Jean-Pierre Melville, Andre Tarkovsky, Akira Kurosawa, Kenji Mizuguchi, and Lupino Visconti. You know, Army of Shadows, Stalker, Seven Samurai. Th- these movies are suffused in all of his movies. Those big vistas, those triumphant shots of people shot from below to look more powerful than they are, the shadow, the light. All that stuff is in all of those films. His favorite movies of all time that he's listed. Pretty good list. Wild Bunch, Come and See, La Dolce Vita, Dr. Strangelove, uh, Le Samurai, Army of Shadows, Once Upon a Time in the West, Rocco and His Brothers, a Visconti movie I just watched two weeks ago, The Passenger, and Paris, Texas. Those are all incredible movies. Yeah. Incre- like I can it's recommend every single right. one of those and I've, movies. I've been on a real Jean-Pierre Melville run over these last two years, really, but like it, they're, they're all in Criterion. You should really watch them. I want to read this quote that he, he gave us, which is notable, especially in the context of talking about something like Blade Runner 2049. The biggest challenge of any cinematographer is making the imagery fit together of a piece, that the whole film has a unity to it, and actually that a shot doesn't stand out. In a way, it's a false compliment when somebody says, oh, I love the shot where such and sh- such and such. Actually, you shouldn't love that shot. You should love what's happening. You should be in the story. Somehow that's taken you out of it. 
very relevant to the conversation we're having about 1917, too, and kind of what Deacons brings to the table here. Let's see how many films we have on our long list, shall we? 23. This is going to be hard. Are you guys going to X me out on Prisoners? Pick a, pick a Villeneuve. We'll start with a Villeneuve. Are we going to be cute or are we going to be honest? Just outvote me. It's okay. This is a democracy. I vote Sicario. I vote Blade Runner. Well, well then what are we going to do here? I'm going to go to Sicario then. Yes. Well, then Sicario gets it. So we're nixing Blade Runner and Prisoners. Yes. This gets us to 21. Okay. Skyfall has to be on. Has to be on. Skyfall has to be on. Lose True Grit. Okay. Lose True Grit. Serious Man this is a tough one. Tough one for me. I'll fight for it. Okay. Let's leave Serious Man. I think, let's do what we absolutely have to have. No Country and Assassination. You have to have. Just absolutely. Jarhead out. Jarhead out. Village out. Village out. I think you should do Man Who Wasn't There. I think, oh, brother, we can lose. Sorry for going fast. We're already sitting on six. So if we lose, oh, brother, that's seven with the Man Who Wasn't There. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty, we got a lot of cutting to do here. All right, cut Siege. The Siege, okay. Well, that's so sad for you, though. I'm I'm willing to do what it takes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can't say that I remember. I have I I may have seen Kundun Kundun, but I I don't I can't really remember a single thing about it. Is that because you believe that Tibet should not be free? Oh, Sean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Are you fucking putting Rango on here or what? No, 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 those those movies don't qualify. Okay. Those movies don't qualify. Though, in many ways, Rango is the kundun of my heart. You just became a total chaos agent in the last two minutes. (laughs) What happened? What what spirit took over your body? I'm just getting all these ads from the 1917 hive. All right. Let's okay, let's cut Dead Man Walking. We know that's not gonna make the cut. this is a real issue here. I think you can cut Hudsucker. Okay, we'll cut the Hudsucker proxy. Chris, unfortunately, we're gonna have to cut Thunderheart. That's fine. Yeah. I think you have to keep Barton Fink. The life of the mind. This is just a lot of Coen brothers, bro. Well, well, he's worked with them a lot. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen on the list right now. Thirteen. I don't think Sid and Nancy can go anywhere. We have to represent the early stage of we his do. career. So we have painful decisions to make. Kundun out. Yeah. Kundun out. Sorry to Christopher. Multisante, who loved Kundun. I gotta say, I think the Big Lebowski (laughs) is incredibly well shot. But if we lose it, I'm not gonna walk out. I agree with that. I mean, it has has other things. Yeah. To me, that's a a script movie. To me. Yeah, but think of those Busby Berkeley sequences. Think of the camera following the bowling ball running into the lane. That's fucking beautiful. Okay, then let's cut Serious Man. Think of the Jesus. Let's cut Serious Man sidling up to the gutter and dropping that ball in the middle of the frame. What are you going to cut? I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to admire art. Why does it always have to be a war? Fargo has to stay. (laughs) The rules of this thing. Fargo and Shawshank have to stay. Okay. I agree with that. I actually, Shawshank has to stay. I, I was willing to offer up Fargo, even though I don't like it, but in the spirit of compromise. I don't. Okay. The car coming up in the snow. The lights over the hill on the road, iconic I have stuff. To say, what, this podcast becoming you just like describing love shots. Cinematography just is give like, me beautiful. You gotta shots. cut serious, man. You gotta do it. What? <laughs> you gotta do it. You gotta do it. You can't just be like, here's what we have to keep. Here's what we have to keep. You can't, and you can't yell at me about prisoners. Best final shot in the Coen Brothers' career. Congratulations to Joel and Ethan Coen on all of their work. 
<laughs> this is about Roger Deakins. You can't tell me that we're getting into the, these are non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable to have no country and assassination of Jesse James. It's one of my favorite years of movie making ever. I'll cut Lebowski. Okay. You still have to cut two more. 1917 Wait. 1, Sicario 2, Skyfall 3, Serious Man 4, because you're being weird, No Country for Old Men 5, Assassination, assassination of Jesse James 6, we Man Who Wasn't There 7, Fargo 8, Shawshank 9, Barton Fink 10, Sid Nancy 11. You have to cut one. I'd probably I, go Fargo. I, I, I have already said that I think you got. There is a lot of sameness in the tent. We are doing a lot of Western vistas. We are doing a lot of like rich, outdoorsy, neo-Western stuff here. Whereas so Fargo been- is just like the whitewashed Great Plains. Actually, not Great Plains, right? Minnesota. Land of Lakes. Chris, Fargo's in North Dakota. That's right. Sean is just glaring at Chris. This is like angry Sean body language. I'm just going to narrate this breakdown in real time. Nostrils flaring. Where's Rango set? <laughs> also in the American West. That was a, it's like a fro- Also in the life of the mind. And that's a frog who's a sheriff, right? He's not a frog. <laughs> He's not a frog. He's a gecko. Is he sheriff? Just... <laughs> is that like a he... top top 10 frog sheriff movies? Is where's Rango at? <laughs> this is a shameful podcast. I think we need to stop and delete this. It's so Su- funny su- when you get so mad. Suggest one cut. We did. We suggested Fargo. What's wrong with you? You I, won't I, let us get rid you of wanna, serious you man. You want to keep the man who wasn't there, but not Fargo? Yeah, because I, I like the, like the, you don't want to have a black and white entry here? What does that mean? Okay, why is it? Why did we get to the short list in the first place? Let me ask you this: Should we? You cut? said it's his, their most beautiful movie. Should we of the Coen Brothers? I did say that. Who we've not made like eighteen movies by them. <sighs> Should we cut nineteen seventeen? Fuck yeah! Punch it in right here. Sure, that's you. But what about, will you respond to all the reply guys? Yeah, no, personally, I will forward them all to you at Sean Fennessy. There's a, it's EY. Sean, and then just you, so you just hit right. them with the Rango meme. I don't think we can take. Blade Runner 2049 and 1917 off the list. I was going to say, if we're doing objective Apex Mountain-ish type thing, then you have to keep... Wait, Blade Runner's back on? No. If you want to do do Blade Runner instead of 1917, I'll go with you on that journey. Let me add one twist to this conversation. It's not... It's just a factoid. Roger Deakins is 70. Uh Uh-huh. 70 years old. No, older. He was born in 42. No, he was born in 49. Oh, I thought he was born in 42. He's not 80. This podcast is devolving. Oh, I'm thinking of Rango. He was born in 42. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. But frogs kind of like peak in their 80s, you know? That's when they do the most Let long. Let me ask you an, an important question. Have you enjoyed your final appearance on the big picture? Am I, am I doing bad today? Am I doing poorly? <laughs> You've assaulted me and you're next. I'm just laughing because you're mad. And uh, also the frog bit's funny. I I'm, I I might I might nick Sicario. Okay, is that what? you're just getting I, mad? He's just getting you mad. You know at what? Me. I advocated for like two things on this list, and they are Skyfall and Sicario. Otherwise, I'm just going along with you nerds and all your camera shit, and you're doing jokes about frogs, and you're just like talking about cameras. Yeah, okay, for like cameras. an hour, and I've had to go to the bathroom this whole time, <laughs> and I'm just sitting here wanting this to end, but I want to keep Sicario. Well. Jesus. This is your cross to bear, then. I guess you're going to have to wait to go to the bathroom until we finish this. 
Why are you? I know why you're being so stubborn. This is a nightmare. Why did we do this? This was much easier when it was two people because then he so had I'm to. egging him on. Yeah. yeah. Well, he had to join in a spirit of compromise. He, he but also now gets we, really excited to shut me down. Yeah, well, yeah. me too. He just wants to be right. And when there's when there's three people there, like, yeah. <laughs> there are different allegiances. You have to pick one, Sean. You have to cut either Fargo or the man who wasn't there. I'll cut Fargo. Okay. You don't feel good about it, though. I feel horrible about it. Horrible. Horrible. Well. Horrible. What an, what an amazing career this man has had. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed your amazing careers, which are now over in the, in the public consciousness and on the big picture because of these shameful acts <laughs> for which you will never be forgiven. Congratulations to both of you. Justice for prisoners. Thank um, you for listening to the big picture. Chris, thanks for being here. For the last time. For the last time. Amanda and I will be back later this week. We'll be talking about the most anticipated movies of 2020. um, If she's still alive. See you then. (laughs) 